alguém Green Park. It had been a long time since I'd thought about the case of Sheridan Shaw, which was a good thing, because it had cast a long shadow over my life for many years. The case had ended my short-lived career with the Met, and having never encountered failure before, I had felt wronged and bitter about it for far longer than was healthy. In the mid-2000s, Sheridan Shaw had been a prostitute and a heroin addict who worked the streets amid the tangle of railway lines behind King's Cross Station. It's become a smart part of town now, but back then it was notorious. She was found strangled. It was awful, it goes without saying, but for someone in her line of work and with her habits, it wasn't entirely exceptional. Inspector Davis, who was heading up the inquiry, saw it as open and shut. It would most likely be the pimp or the dealer, who were in many instances the same person. If that didn't fly, it would be a client. That would be a pain because it would mean more people to trace. But one or other of these lines of inquiry would do the business more often than not. In this case, however, I had my doubts. I knew it wouldn't make me popular, but Inspector Davis had always encouraged me to speak my mind. The way I see it, there is something a bit unusual about this one, I said when he called for comments at the briefing. The location's all wrong. Sheridan's body had been found on the eastern side of Green Park. It was hardly a discreet spot, overlooked by some of the most expensive flats in London, as well as government buildings that were normally patrolled by security or police. In fact, from the crime scene, you could just about glimpse the white stone of Buckingham Palace through the trees. And the thing was, I knew what these girls were like. They didn't stray. You didn't find them popping up all over the West End. They commuted in from wherever they lived way out in the sticks normally, and then they stuck to the streets they knew, which meant the ones at the back of King's Cross. Sheridan Shaw had probably never seen Buckingham Palace in her life, although it was only a couple of miles away from the patch she worked. So, I said to the meeting, I think we might have to think a bit more laterally about this one. I knew it wouldn't go down well with my fellow officers. I could hear them shuffling their feet and muttering. I joined the police on a graduate fast track, and for the past few months I'd been working out of West End Central in Savile Row. It was a fairly enlightened place compared to some, but there was still a bit of resentment against us graduates among the older officers, which was multiplied several times if you happened to be female. But I took the line that if I had something to say, I was going to say it, and they'd just have to bloody well put up with it. However... I saw that Inspector Davis looked at me with a flicker of irritation when I'd finished. Noted, he said, and then he moved the meeting on briskly to the next point. I should have taken the hint and let it drop, but I didn't. Forensics had given us a time of roughly 3 to 4 a.m. for the murder, so it would have been extremely quiet. But still, there would have been cleaners around, staff from the smart hotels, people working night shifts... So I investigated, like a good police officer is supposed to do. And it turned out that there were three people who said they had seen a woman fitting the description of the victim in the early hours of that morning. 
The problem was their English was poor, and from the way they behaved towards me, I had a pretty good idea that none of them had legal status in this country. They wouldn't make great witnesses, but nevertheless, they had all described something remarkably similar. A young woman talking to a small group of well-dressed people not long before the murder took place. On top of that, two of them had described one of the men as having a distinctive mark on the left-hand side of his face. I'd mimed a scar, but they had each shaken their heads. It had been a red mark, a birthmark, I assumed, and prominent enough for them to notice from a distance on a dark night. I shared what I'd found with Inspector Davis, but he rolled his eyes and sighed. An arrest had been made that afternoon. It was the victim's pimp and dealer. But don't you think we should at least consider the possibility that we've got the wrong person? I said. I'd always suspected the inspector had a bit of a soft spot for me, but this was obviously too much for him. We've got our man, Sarah, he said to me. Drop it. We clear our minds and we move on. Unfortunately, I just couldn't. OK, the bloke they'd got was a villain, no doubt about it. He was probably guilty of a list of crimes as long as your arm, but I just couldn't see how he was guilty of this one. He'd be no more comfortable in the environs of Green Park than Sheridan Shaw would, and given the number of derelict buildings and quiet railway sidings in King's Cross, if he wanted to murder her, why would he traipse across town to do it? Nope. As far as I could see, the charges against him were just a way of getting him off the streets. Natural justice, some might call it, but to me, it felt plain wrong. And then, about a week before the case was due to come to trial, I was walking to the tube after work when I spotted a middle-aged man coming towards me. He was wearing an extremely well-cut suit, which wasn't unusual in that part of town, but he also had a distinctive red birthmark on the left side of his face. I stopped and pretended to check my phone as he passed and then turned to follow him. Now, it had been drummed into me that the pursuit of random coincidences had little place in serious detective work, but I simply couldn't resist it. He weaved his way through the streets of Mayfair to Barclay Square, where he got into a rather sleek, racing green Bentley convertible. As he drove off, I made a note of the number. I tapped it into the database when I got to work the next morning. Alas, it came back with absolutely no interesting information at all. It did, however, earn me a swift and incredibly stern rebuke from Inspector Davis. I wasn't quite sure how he'd found out so quickly, but he not only knew what I'd done, but he'd also immediately jumped to the conclusion that it had something to do with the Sheridan Shaw case. It was decidedly odd. How many times do I have to bloody tell you? It's done and dusted. Leave it be. I'd never seen him quite so furious. I did try to drop my interest in the case, but the damage was already done. Three weeks later, the accused was sent down for a life sentence, and the next day I found I'd been reassigned to a desk job at the Lehman Street Nick on the other side of the city. I got the message. I walked into a grim, tiny room with a view of a blank brick wall and was shown four filing cabinets full of buff folders that I was to input to a database. This was obviously the end of my fast track. I didn't even bother to open the filing cabinets. There was no point in hanging about. 
By the end of the month, I'd found myself a new job as a junior fraud risk manager for a German investment bank just down the road. It was nothing like as interesting, but oh boy, much more lucrative. Years passed, and as I say, I had weaned myself off the habit of thinking about Sheridan Shaw. And then one Wednesday morning, out of the blue, I got a call. It was the summer of lockdown 2020, and like a lot of other people, I was working from home. For the previous three months, I'd been constantly besieged by communications of every kind from every quarter, but a proper phone call on my landline was a thing so rare as to be almost unique. It was a woman's voice. She introduced herself simply as Elizabeth and came straight to the point. I've discovered some information relating to the Sheridan Shaw case that I thought you might find rather interesting. She had a crisp, rapid way of speaking that made her sound as if she was exasperated with you, even before you had spoken. If you can spare a few moments to discuss it, she said, I would be awfully grateful. Well, OK, I said somewhat suspiciously. Good. Can you come down now? I'm just outside your block. This seemed a bit of a cheek to me, but I took the lift down and found her outside the entrance. She was in her early forties with an upright, almost military bearing. She had a neat blonde bob, smart skirt and blouse, and was wearing the kind of Russell and Bromley flatties that were designed for maximum mobility. "'How did you know where I live?' I said. "'Oh, come on,' she said. "'You were a detective once. Don't pretend to be baffled.' And she gave me a charming smile. "'Shall we take a turn about the park?' She gestured towards the public gardens a little further down the road. Of course, I said. As we walked there, she explained herself. I'm a ghost writer. I write books for people who can't be bothered to do it for themselves, I suppose. It is something which often involves me in a considerable amount of research, which I must confess I do rather enjoy. Anyway, the other day I was working on a book for a client and a murder in Green Park came up. It was a much earlier murder than your one, early 90s, a homeless Scottish chap called Alan Fletcher. But out of habit, I looked into it a bit more carefully and discovered something rather interesting. Well, I think so anyway. We turned into the public gardens and she indicated a bench for us to sit down. You see, she went on, it struck me that over the years there have been rather more murders in Green Park than one might expect in such a central part of town. And, in particular, there have been rather a lot of stranglings. So I went back fifty years and checked the murders by strangulation. And this is what I found. She took a spiral notebook from her bag, opened it, and handed it to me. She had written the following in her neat, precise handwriting. 2007, Sheridan Shaw, prostitute. 1994, Alan Fletcher, unemployed. 1981, Craig Robbins, teenage runaway. 1968, Fiona Mackay, occupation unknown. Do you see a pattern? she asked. Well, they're all, um, how shall I put it, vulnerable people, I suppose? Yes, she said. Not that. I looked again and shook my head. All right, she said. How many of your times tables do you know? Well, up to twelve, like most people. OK. Check the dates again. 2007, 
1984-1981-1968. Ah, I said. I see it now. They're thirteen years apart. Exactly. It's a pattern you're not taught to see. And so most people don't. And it occurred to me that there might be something in it. Well, there might be, I suppose, I said. But why did you come to me? I left the force years ago. Your name came up in a number of articles connected with the Sheridan Shaw case. I found out a little more about you, and I wondered if you might still be curious. I'm not trying to put you under any pressure, but I thought someone should look into this. She tore the page out of her notebook. My phone number's on the back, she said. She was right, of course. I was curious, although I knew that getting involved was the last thing I should be doing. I'd put the damn thing out of my head. I'd moved on. But when I got back, I couldn't help myself. I needed to know if the thirteen-year pattern stretched back any further into the past. So I called an old colleague who still worked for the Met and asked if he could look up a couple of things in the archive. Did any murders by strangulation take place in Green Park in either 1955 or 1942? He came back to me a couple of days later. It turned out there were stranglings in the park in both those years. I got back to Elizabeth. OK, I said. I am curious. You're right. Well, in that case, she said, there's someone else you should speak to. She arranged for me to meet the professor at his members club in St. James's. I was signed in by a doorman and taken up a grand wooden staircase and into a long, elegant room. The far end was dominated by floor-to-ceiling French windows thrown open to the warm midsummer evening, and in front of them was an elderly gentleman in a smart white linen suit, seated at a card table, shuffling and cutting a pack of playing cards on the green baize. He stood up as I approached. "'Forgive me if I don't shake your hand,' he said. "'There are new rules, I believe.' He motioned for me to sit down opposite him. "'So, Elizabeth tells me you worked on the Sheridan Shaw case,' he said, expertly arranging the cards into a neat stack. "'Yes,' I said. "'She told me you might be able to shed some light on it.' "'Yes. Well, when I saw what Elizabeth had uncovered,' A few thoughts did immediately spring to mind. Such as? Let me give you a little bit of background. I'm retired now, but I was a scholar of ancient history for much of my career. And when one sees a pattern such as she showed me, such a regular pattern over a lengthy period of time, this thirteen-year interval, and such a standardised mode of execution, each one a strangulation... I am tempted to hypothesize that there is some kind of ritual, some kind of religion at work. I'm sorry? What kind of religion are we talking about? When I say religion, I use it in an etymological sense. The origin of the word has no notion of worship or divinity. It is related to the word ligature. Something that binds, something we might use to bind a wound, for example. And so religion, from this point of view, is not so much about the worship of gods and goddesses. It is more a way of forming a group, a community, 
It is a way of binding people together. I see, I said. And, of course, there is no better way to bind people together than to have them share a secret. The guiltier the secret, the better. And what is the worst, the most heinous kind of guilty secret that you can think of? Um, I don't know, I said. Then I'll tell you, said the professor. The utterly pointless murder of a completely innocent person. I got it. A group that shares that particular secret, he continued, is bound together more tightly than any other in the world. I nodded. You're talking about a sacrifice, I said. Exactly. That is precisely the social function it performs. And so you're saying that Sheridan Shaw and these other victims weren't just random murders? No. I would certainly entertain the possibility that each one was an instance of human sacrifice. This sounded utterly fanciful to me, but he seemed like a serious enough fellow. I saw no harm in pursuing it. Okay, so is there a significance in the number 13? I asked. I mean, obviously I know it's unlucky. He threw his head back and laughed. Let me try and explain it as simply as I can. We think of a year as the time it takes for the Earth to orbit the Sun. But for the ancients, it was the time it took for the stars to return to exactly the same position in the sky. We know it takes 365 days, or just a tad longer. But that's a large number to hold in your head. It was far easier for the ancients to count the moons because the moon returns to the same place in the sky every 28 days. Multiply 28 by the number 13, and what do you get? He raised an eyebrow at me. I tried to do the sum, but I wasn't quick enough. 364, he said. Not quite the year we know today, but in ancient times it was as near as damn it. And so, the number 13 held a position of special importance in many ancient societies. It was the number of months in the ancient year. It was the number by which they organized their lives. Then the Romans came along and decided to change it all. They replaced it with a system based on 12 months of completely irregular length, in which the moon was an irrelevance. And Christianity, of course, adopted the Roman system. Indeed, one might interpret part of the Christian story as a metaphor for exactly this. Christ is betrayed by his thirteenth disciple who is sent away. Christ dies and rises again, and his word is spread by the remaining twelve. Hmm. Interesting, I said. And so in Christian societies, thirteen came to be associated with the old pagan religions of the past. Twelve was the number of enlightenment and salvation. Thirteen, the number of bad luck, error, ignorance, darkness. But just as those older religions persisted in some form or another for many years, however savagely they were suppressed, so too did the significance of thirteen. Indeed, in certain ways, it is still with us today. I'll give you a simple example. He patted the cards on the table in front of him. 
Take a deck of playing cards. Why are they considered to be evil? Um, because people use them to gamble? That's one reason, he said. But there is another. Let me show you. He cut the pack, turned the smaller pile over, and fanned it across the table. It was the suit of hearts. Very impressive, I said. It's just practice. He gave me a modest smile. So, how many cards are there in a suit? He asked. Ten, Jack, Queen, King, thirteen. Aha! And how many suits in a pack? Four. Multiply four by thirteen and what comes to mind? Fifty-two, I said. Okay, so the number of weeks in the year. <laughs> Let's play some more. Add the numbers from one to thirteen. There was a trick to doing this. Let me see if I could remember. So, add the numbers at each end. One plus thirteen equals fourteen. And all the other pairs would have the same value. Two plus twelve, three plus eleven, and so on. So that would be one, two, three, four, five, six sets of fourteen, which make eighty-four. Add the seven in the middle. Ninety-one, I said. Very good, said the professor. And multiply that by the number of suits. Four ninety-ones are... Uh, 364. The number of days in a lunar year. He picked up another card from the pack and held it in front of me. Add one card and what do we get? 365. The number of days in our year. And what do we call that card? The Joker, I said. He placed the card face up on the bays. The fool who takes a perfect system and turns it into a foolish one. That, I suppose, is the implication, said the professor. Now do you see why cards are considered evil? Yes, I think I see what you're saying. A pack of playing cards is a reminder of another way of looking at the world. An ancient way, a forbidden way but one that nevertheless is still with us, hiding in plain sight. So, if I may ask, I said, what is the connection between all this and the deaths of all those people? He stood up and gazed out at the view through the tall French windows, and I realised that the treetops we could see outside were the trees of Green Park. Go and take another look at the crime scene, he said. Look around you very carefully, and bear in mind what I've just said. I left through the front entrance of the club, and found my way through a couple of narrow streets, down an alley, and into the park itself. On a sultry June evening such as this, it would normally have been full of tourists, young couples, people out for a late-night stroll. But London had only just reopened after lockdown, and it was completely deserted. The lights of a double-decker bus went along Piccadilly to the north, but apart from that, there was not a sound, not even the usual hum of traffic. The murder had taken place among the trees, about halfway down towards Buckingham Palace. I remembered the spot well. I found it, stood there and looked about me, just as the professor had suggested. I'd never noticed it before, 
but now I saw that the trees around me were not planted at random, as I had assumed. Now that I looked more carefully, I could see they formed a large circle, about fifty yards across. I counted them, and sure enough, there were thirteen of them. What was this? Some kind of druidic grove? They were huge London plane trees that must have stood there for many, many years, and it was a stone's throw from Buckingham Palace, as the professor had said, hidden in plain sight. Looking more closely, I realised they were planted at regular intervals, all except two which stood slightly wider apart, giving the impression of a gateway and about twenty yards outside the circle, at the midpoint of this gateway, was another huge plane. I took out my phone and opened the compass feature. It appeared to be aligned to around sixty degrees northeast. Would that be the angle of the sunrise? I wondered. I didn't get a chance to pursue the thought, because at that moment I was hit from behind by a colossal force. I went sprawling to the ground, and as I did so, my first instinct was to clutch my phone to me, but that wasn't what he was after. He grabbed hold of my hair and wrenched my head up. I couldn't see who it was, but I could smell him. He had that sickly sweet smell of someone who has gone unwashed for a considerable time. When he'd hauled me to my knees, he released me for a moment and I should have tried to get away, but I was too winded to move. Then, in a flash, his two arms came over my head, and with a jerk, he pulled something tight against my neck. Instinctively, I reached for my throat and managed to get the fingers of my right hand inside whatever it was he was trying to pull tight. I realised at once that it must be some kind of cord, because I could feel it cutting deep into my knuckles. I flailed my left arm backwards and managed to connect with something with my elbow. He grunted. I flailed again and caught him harder this time. He released his grip for just enough time for me to attempt to get to my feet, but he recovered and hauled on the cord with all the force he could muster, groaning with the effort as he did. It was cutting deep into my fingers now and into the left side of my neck as well. Once more, I flailed my arm and it felt like I might have caught him in the eye this time. At the same time, I twisted my body and succeeded in toppling him. He crashed to the ground beside me and I managed to pull the cord from his hands. He cursed, reached out, and smacked me across the nose with the flat of his hand. I rolled away and got halfway to my feet, but he grabbed the back of my blouse and pulled me back. I kicked out and got him in the face. He grunted, and I got to my feet and turned to face him. Bitch, he yelled, his eyes mad and rolling. Then, in a single movement, he got to his feet and flung himself at me. I thrust my arms out in front to stop him, holding the cord taut between my hands in self-defence. His whole body seemed to fall on top of me, and I suddenly felt an agonising pain in my shoulder. I wasn't sure what the hell it was, but I had the cord at his neck now. The pain was hideous, and it suddenly occurred to me what he was doing. He had sunk his teeth into me, that's what it was, and he was clamping his jaws harder and harder. I rocked one way, rocked the other, forcing the cord against the front of his neck. He stumbled slightly and I managed to dislodge him. He turned his head away for a moment and I pulled the cord tight, manoeuvring myself behind him at the same time. 
He reached backwards and clawed with his right hand, but he could gain no purchase on me. He flung out his left arm, but made no contact. I had him now. I tightened the cord and yanked on it. His body jerked upwards with the force. I yanked again, and then I pulled on it as hard as I could and held it like that. He writhed and flailed his arms, writhed and flailed again. His whole body twitched, and he made a gasping sound. He twitched again and then started to go limp. I had no conscious thoughts in my mind at all now. I was running entirely on instinct. I held him like that for I don't know how long, and then I let him go. He fell face forwards to the ground and lay there motionless. I was too shocked, too breathless to understand the significance of what I'd done. I stared at the lifeless body in front of me. The bite in my shoulder was agonizing. My clothes were ripped. Blood was pouring from my nose. I ran my tongue around the inside of my mouth to determine which teeth were missing. Then I looked around me, and I realized I was being watched. A figure stood in the middle of each of the gaps between the trees. The fading light made it hard to see who they were at first, and then I started to recognize them. There was the professor, in the same linen suit he'd been wearing earlier, and Elizabeth in a smart, pale blue business suit, and the man with the red birthmark on his face. And there were others, too, who were new to me. One of them, a tall, distinguished-looking fellow, with a mane of white blonde hair swept back from his temples, held his hands out towards me and said, "'Congratulations, Sarah. A very creditable performance.' We've had our eye on you for many years. You have repaid our faith. And he indicated an empty space between a pair of trees. Please, do join us. You are most welcome. Green Park was written by Elgin Barrett and performed by Danica Fairman. Music was by John Woz and technical presentation by Malcolm Blackmore.